0: I am your host, Chuma Obineme, PGY6 Fellow at Emory University. I will be joined by my co-host, Dr. Jason Brown, the Grady Memorial Hospital GI Fellowship Site Director in the interview portion of the show a little bit later. So if you're joining us for the first time or repeat listener every month, we review recent guidelines and reviews within the field of gastroenterology and discuss the more salient points via the use of clinical cases. Today we have a great episode for you and an even better guest. A couple things before we get started with the show. If you have not already left us a review, like or subscribe to our podcast, wherever you listen to to podcasts, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, please do that. Uh, Also, follow along with the article itself or one of our visual summaries from the Emeroid Digest website. And lastly, let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to the Emeroid Digest podcast. Uh, we have a fantastic guest today, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Uh, so, today sitting with us is Dr. Brian Lacey. He is currently a professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic, uh, Jacksonville. Uh, he previously worked at Dartmouth uh, Hitchcock. Medical Center, where he was section chief of gastroenterology and hepatology, uh, and was professor of medicine at the School of Medicine at at Dartmouth. Uh, Dr. Lacey's clinical and basic science research interests focus on disorders of gastrointestinal motility, with an emphasis on IBS, achalasia, dyspepsia, and a number of other topics. But most importantly for our discussion today, gastroparesis, Uh, he is an author of over 215 peer-reviewed articles on gastrointestinal motility disorders and functional bowel disorders uh, in addition to multiple textbook chapters Uh, Dr. Lacey recently finished a sixth year tenure as co-editor-in-chief at the American Journal of Gastroenterology Uh, he is a a former editor-in-chief of clinical and translational gastroenterology he was the co-chairman for the Rome 4 Committee on Functional Bowel Disorders uh, And he is also a fellow graduate of the University of Maryland School of Medicine. And you would never know it, but he is a huge inspiration for this, uh, the creation of the MROID Digest podcast itself. So Dr. Lacey, um, thank you for joining us for the show.
1: Wow, those are uh, wonderful platitudes. Not sure they're all completely accurate, but super excited to be here. And I guess we should say go Terrapins for all you University of Maryland fans, right?
0: That is right um you know uh you know you know dr brown who's, who's uh i'm gonna kick it to him you know he's more of a bulldog but uh you know i'll i let him take it good good friends that are uh, that are big terrapins fans so uh so it's
2: all love here uh today when football season starts well we can re-record it and see how it goes but uh but anyway dr Lacey, um uh, thanks again for being with us um you know, just incredible contributions to the field. So, first of all, thank you for that. When our listeners, um, and many of them are early in training, medical students, residents, early in GI fellowship, look um, at at a role model like you, they they wonder how it is that that all of that came together. And obviously, that's a lot of hard work, a lot of dedication. And so, first of all you know, part of this podcast is a celebration of that. We want to hold that up as, as an example to, to those of us that, that want to be in academics and want to make those kind of contributions. But, but for those that are still trying to discern their path, we like to have these authors walk these learners through that path so that they can sort of get an idea of, of what it took to get where you are, how you got involved in, in everything that you're involved in. So the, the first question is, How did you get involved in in medicine in general?
1: Yeah, you uh, have me thinking about some great memories from quite a long time ago. So I went to the University of Virginia undergraduate I was a double major in biology and psychology, and I did a lot of research, and I really got excited about research, and really, uh, I enrolled two patients for a really neat study uh, this morning looking at gastric emptying, and uh, so I've been doing the research for 40 years, and so after college, I thought I would go into a research career, and that's why I got my PhD first at Georgetown, where I spent five years, but During my career at Georgetown, where I spent most of the time in the lab really doing bench research, I was teaching the medical students histology and gross anatomy and other things. And then as I was doing that, I got really excited about medicine. And I was thinking, this is kind of what I want to do. I want to do research that focuses on clinical medicine. So then I went to medical school. And then in medical school, I almost became a surgeon. um, uh, And I was going to do plastic surgery. But well, then wow. I thought, what I, which is crazy, but what I, as I realized that, what I wanted to do was really transformative plastic surgery. As I did more and more rotations, I got really excited about gastroenterology. It just totally made sense to me. I love the patients. I liked the procedures. I liked kind of the innovative things that were going on in gastroenterology. And then I was fortunate enough to get accepted to a fellowship. And that's what I've been doing for the last 30 years. And, you know, I still wake up every day. I have a great, I have an amazing job. I have a great job. I wake up every day, just excited to be doing gastroenterology. Wow, well, I
2: appreciate the, the enthusiasm that you bring to this. I think, you know, for, for those students that are sort of looking ahead, that gives them an idea of, of everybody sort of takes different paths. Um, and there's what you set for yourself. And then there's also this concept of, of mentorship, those that, Help guide you along the way. I find that very important and and a theme that I like to bring up in these interviews. Can you describe the role of of mentorship on that journey and and how you um, sort of cultivated those relationships and and now on the back end, if if we have time and can get to it, what you look for in somebody that approaches you for mentorship?
1: Wow, what what a nice question. And I'm fortunate I'm now the Associate Program Director for scholarly activities here at Mayo and so I get to do a lot of mentoring which is just wonderful. And I think I didn't realize until later in my career how important mentorship is and that's something I counsel our residents and fellowships on extensively to find the right mentor or mentors. And I was fortunate enough in graduate school to have a great mentor who really taught me how to understand and how to perform research. I had at the University of Maryland, Theodore Woodward as my mentor, and I worked with him closely, and he took me under his wing, and again, trying to tell me about the basics of medicine. He was 80 years old when he was my mentor, and he came to work excited every day. It was absolutely amazing. And then at Dartmouth, I had several wonderful mentors as well, and so I've been very fortunate in my career for people who took extra time and extra care to help me. And it makes me, every day, go out of my way to make sure that the residents and fellows have somebody looking out for them as well. And just as an aside without boring everybody, for those of you who don't know, Theodore Woodward, who was nominated for the Nobel Prize, is where the phrase, when you hear hoofbeats," that's where it originated from. So that's your medical trivia for the day that's really neat that's re- we actually do um,
2: and chuma you might remember this from residency a hoofbeats conference that is okay. modeled after that saying uh, where we, we present the material in a certain way and you have to determine if it's a horse or a zebra so that's really neat um, chuma I could you know I, I could dominate this as long as you would let me but I, I know we want to get
0: on to the guidelines that's right. Before we get there, um, I, I'm just really curious about the uh, American Journal, you know, Gastroenterology's the podcast. Um, like, how did you? Did, is this something that was already there before you were co-editor in chief, or did you guys kind of devise this and and create it? I'm just.
1: Yes, I wish we could take credit. It had started just before we got on, and then Brennan and I took it from an occasional podcast to a monthly podcast, and Brennan and I alternated. He would do one month, and I would do the other month, and they are just a blast you know, there's nothing like talking to really smart people who are excited and enthusiastic about what they do. And we had a lot of fun with it. I always learned something new. Even though I had read the paper, you know, we would read 3,000 manuscripts a year uh, trying to get in the Red Journal. Even though we had read all of them all the way through, it was always fun to talk to the author who had done the study. So uh, podcasts are great, and I think we all learn so much from them. Yeah, I thought it was really
0: cool when when you and Brennan Spiegel did the um, the bit when you guys had you guys discussed the sticky points uh, and Um and I just feel like for any of our listeners who have not heard that episode, they should like hit pause, <laughs> go listen to that because that's almost like a primer for our discussion. Because um, I want and in that I guess in that podcast, you guys really you guys talked a lot about you know. A lot about gastroparesis. A lot about some of like you know some of the overlap between like functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis. But the I guess the place I almost feel like where the these this expert review and like you know update on the management of medically refractory gastroparesis differs is that I feel like the review really focuses a lot on like medical and you know surgical therapy. So I kind of wanted our discussion to kind of you know reflect that. Um, so maybe. Maybe in the beginning, just to sort of like set the scene, you know, how do you think about um, some of the different like pathophysiologic mechanisms that underlie gastroparesis? Because I think you know, initially as a fellow, I always thought it was just like you know, stomach weak. You know, you need medications that will increase you know the the contraction of the stomach to improve um, you know its ability to
1: empty. Uh, How do you think about? You know, some of the mechanisms that underlie gastroparesis. Right. So if you want to spend the next three hours talking about the myths, (laughs) the myths and myth perceptions of gastroparesis, that'd be great. But (laughs) but you know, as you've nicely pointed out, here's the problem. Look at the term that's used: gastroparesis. This comes from the Greek, right? Paresis meaning weakness, that you're paretic. And rarely is the stomach paretic, rarely is the stomach. Paralyzed. So the actual term is part of the confusion about this disorder, and so we need to kind of allay some of those misconceptions. And your point is that when we think about gastroparesis, we're all taught, "Well, the stomach just empties slowly. That's all there is to it." It's so much more complicated than that, which is exactly why. All these medications used to treat gastroparesis have have failed, right? We haven't had a new medication for gastroparesis since 1979 when metaclopramide was approved. That's 43 years ago. We're not making progress because of this problem with the name. And so your point is absolutely accurate gastroparesis is not one disorder, it's multiple. And in some people, it's abnormal feedback from the duodenum. In some people, there is spasm or incomplete relaxation of the pylorus, somewhat similar to achalasia. In some people, it's a problem with the fundus not relaxing properly. When you endoscope somebody after an overnight fast and all their food is still in their fundus, they have a fundic problem. In some people, it's a gastric pacemaker dysrhythmia. and some people it's after an infection. So the problem is we think of it as one category, we throw one drug at it, and no wonder people don't get an improvement in symptoms, right? With that, uh, I, I think I'm just going
0: to jump into our first case, and then maybe we'll just kind of get your take on it. Um, so this is a 29 year old female. Uh, she has a history of hypertension, iron deficiency anemia. Uh, And she presents to your clinic for an evaluation of, you know, of her her gastroparesis. She's she's been told that she has this. Um, She reports a stable weight. And she actually, she said she did have a gastric emptying study from a a year ago. uh, And it shows uh, 15% retention at four hours. Um, I guess my question is, uh, does she have gastroparesis? And then how do you approach, you
1: know, managing this patient? Okay, so let's take this from the top, and we'll try to stay focused. One is, um, gastric emptying scans are notoriously done incorrectly. We surveyed 800 institutions in the United States. Only 5% did four critical points correctly. So the vast majority of gastric emptying scans are done incorrectly. That means when you see a patient and they've had a gastric emptying scan, really make sure it meets a few key criteria one was it a four-hour scan number two is it a solid phase meal number three were they off opioids and high-dose tricyclics and number four did they check for diabetes and was the blood sugar controlled and by the way academic institutions did worse than community institutions doing gastrochemical scans wow now, this one looks like, at first glance, four hours. That, that at first point is reassuring to me, but you need to make sure it wasn't oatmeal or it wasn't a honey bun. I just saw that the other day, or it wasn't a peanut butter sandwich. I saw that two weeks ago. It's all nonsense. It's not validated. And so you may need to repeat the gastric emptying scan. The next point here is, what's her predominant symptom? So that's what I really want to know. We just discussed how gastroparesis is actually a heterogeneous disorder, multiple things. Is this really a nausea patient? Is it a vomiting patient? Is it a pain predominant patient? Because that actually helps tease things out. And then I'm going to start thinking, is this somebody I'm going to put in a, a mild category with kind of just mild symptoms of nausea, not too frequent? Is it more moderate with a lot of vomiting? Or is this somebody who's severe? They're in the ER, they're losing weight, et cetera, and et cetera. So that helps me figure out what category I'll put them in and how I might treat them. But at first glance, what I'm thinking is, is this really a gastroparesis patient or is this more of a functional dyspepsia patient? Because you haven't told me yet if she's vomiting. Okay. Uh,
0: So you ask her a little bit more. Uh, She notes that, you know, occasional nausea, occasional vomiting, but really her predominant symptom is pain. And she feels like... You know, and it's even worse after meals, really,
1: that she has she has pain. Great. Um, okay. So that helped that helps. So don't forget, um, and this will be published next year. We just submitted a really interesting study looking at four hundred consecutive patients referred to us for the concern of over What did we find? Only twenty percent actually had gastroparesis, eighty percent were misdiagnosed, in part because stomach emptying scans were bad. They were on opioids. They had SMA syndrome. They had celiac artery compression syndrome. They had something else. So in my mind, I'm thinking about other things. Pain is present in gastroparesis patients. Remember, this is a neuropathic disorder in many ways, and 90% of gastroparesis patients have some pain or discomfort. But when I start hearing pain predominance with less nausea and less or minimal vomiting, I start thinking, could this be a patient with functional dyspepsia, which is much more prevalent than gastroparesis? Might they have celiac artery compression syndrome? Could this be SMA syndrome? Was this related to some prior surgery? I don't hear a lot of the nausea and vomiting, although she has some. But in the back of my mind, don't forget, always ask about cannabis use and consider cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. That's perfect, yeah. So I I really like how you jumped more into the, uh, like,
0: eliciting more of their history. Are there, um, you know, is there like a standard metabolic workup that you put these patients through, you know, when you're kind of evaluating them for gastro or, you know, functional dyspepsia?
1: I don't know. The answer is no. There are no validated trials looking at what is a required evaluation for these patients. We know that to make the proper diagnosis of gastroparesis, you should have symptoms thought to represent delayed gastrokempting. You should have a properly performed using, uh, that means a four-hour gastrokempting scan using an egg beater's meal. You should have a properly performed scan, and you should have an upper endoscopy not showing evidence of an organic disorder. So you really need those three things to make that diagnosis uh Conclusively. And then you can ask about the predominant symptom and think about treatment. But as as to continue that discussion, the basics would include some simple blood work. So if not recently done a, a, a CBC, a complete blood count, um, especially with patients with nausea and vomiting, I'd want to get a metabolic profile and make sure their potassium is not off or their uh, uh, magnesium or phosphorus as an example. Uh, Rarely do patients have a thyroid problem only with severe hypothyroidism. That's a TSH in the 50s, 60s, 70s. I don't go looking for autoimmune or connective tissue disorders at first glance. Um, I do oftentimes with somebody with significant nausea and vomiting, I will get a, I will ask them about uh, cannabis and or other agents, and I will check a urine toxicology screen. But beyond that, you don't need to go into a whole battery of tests. At that point, you probably should be treating the predominant symptom. And then if they fail to respond, you may want to go to more extensive tests.
0: Okay, okay. Um, okay, so let's say for this patient, um, you know, you she was, you know, very, we weren't sure of her diagnosis. So she gets an EGD that's negative, repeat the gastroenteria emptying study with, you know, Eggbeater's meal, not on opioids, no TCAs, you know, comes back in her, um, you know, her, her. she's retaining apparently now 20% uh, at, at four hours. Um, but she is very skeptical about starting on any medications. Um, I guess, what's your, therapeutically or, you know, what's your,
1: how, how would you counsel this patient at this point? Okay. So, great. So, it's nice to talk to a patient who maybe has done some research and might be a little skeptical about medications. That's okay. Remember, what makes a great patient visit is to educate your patient and reassure them and have that back and forth discussion. They will be more satisfied and more likely to uh, take part in the treatment plan as opposed to you just telling them this is what you need to do. So, what about diet so let's let's discuss the world's literature on diet for gastroesophageal patients there's one study from sweden right one small study showing that a low particle diet helps symptoms that is the world's literature so for many patients small meals frequent meals a blenderized low particle diet helps patients and again low fat don't forget fats, slow stomach emptying. So on a Friday night, if you're going out for a big meal, don't be surprised. A big late night meal that's rich and fatty may cause slow stomach emptying, may cause a little nausea and also reflux. So small, frequent, low-fat meals with uh, reduction in fat helps many patients with mild symptoms. But it probably, uh, it may help the nausea, may even help vomiting, but it probably won't do anything for pain. So this comes back and uh, to ask the patient, what's your predominant symptom? Yeah. Are there, um,
0: Let's. I mean, I guess maybe to put you in a tough spot, I mean, if this patient really was, you know, her predominant symptom was pain, doesn't want to start medications. I mean, how are you, uh, what do you say to that patient?
1: Yeah, so we don't have great OTC or herbal products. You know, I think we should keep our blinders off for visceral pain, do we? We do have some data from functional dyspepsia showing that a combination of caraway oil and l menthol does help. Uh, patients with Rome 3FD patients at up to four weeks, and we have other uncontrolled trials showing the same. There's a little bit of data about iberogas, the combination of nine different herbs, again, in functional dyspepsia patients, but not gastroparesis patients um generally considered safe but keep an eye on these because there are uh, there are two case reports about maybe some significant liver problems with Iberogast. there are two very small studies about capsaicin that capsaicin can improve visceral pain and the concept is that capsaicin initially worsening your abdominal pain will slowly improve things because it may deplete substance p and the uh, nerve terminals. Um, and there's a Japanese uh, herbal product Rikon Shito uh, again has been shown to help some symptoms of functional dyspepsia, but we really don't have great trials in the gastropresis market. Hmm. And then for clarification for the capsaicin because I know this is a topical
0: is is it do you, where do you apply? Cuz I've seen, I've heard about this capsaicin, use,
1: like how do you actually Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, thanks for calling me out on that. I, I apologize. So there is there is topical capsaicin. So if somebody had a positive Carnet sign, you could try topical capsaicin. But this is actually red hot chili peppers ingested. And the first was from a small letter to the New England Journal over 20 years ago. So small amounts ingested. And what I tell my patients is we can try this. Mm-hmm. But you're going to feel worse in the first week. You can call me, but actually don't call me because you're going to feel worse because it takes a while to improve your symptoms. And, and a few people have tried that, and they do seem to help the mild symptoms.
0: Okay, okay. Now, so I guess I'm curious. I was going to take the case forward and say, okay, let's say she tries nutrition, tries some of these over-the-counter you know, supplements that she was comfortable with. But you know, she just feels like her symptoms aren't improving. And I was gonna ask about Reglan in this patient, but would I mean would that be your Yeah, I don't know, what's your next what would your next step be if she's now ready to take on medication? She's saying,
1: you know, nothing's helping. I need to, I need something stronger. Great. Okay. So let's let's say you're a, a younger provider or a provider newer to clinical practice and you want to follow evidence-based medicine, then what you would say is the only thing I can give you, Miss Jones, we'll call her Miss Jones, is metoclopramide because that is the only medication approved by the FDA for the treatment of diabetic gastroparesis. By the way, it's just diabetic, not idiopathic. And she's not diabetic, so we might put her in the mm. idiopathic gastroparesis category. So if you want to follow the rules, that's it. Now, The side effects of metoclopramide, which can include anxiety, can include a little bit of depression, poor sleep, gynecomastia, lactation, change in menstrual cycles, those are pretty easy to deal with. What people are really worried about is tardive dyskinesia. It's actually not common. So the FDA has given this a black box warning. Everybody on the uh, phone call today probably knows that and listening in. But it's actually not that common. And there's one study from the EU looking at 8 million prescriptions for metoclopramide. And there were only 10 cases of tardive dyskinesia. So although metoclopramide is considered the only FDA-approved drug, and if you start it at low dose, go slowly for many patients, it improves symptoms but remember, it will only help nausea and vomiting and will do nothing for pain. So I might direct her to something else and focus on some agent to help with visceral pain. I
2: um,
1: wanted to interject one question there.
2: Um, sometimes folks talk about QTC, um, and I wondered whether or not um, there's any cardiac monitoring or baseline EKG and then interval EKGs that need to be done um, right now.
1: Yeah, Dr. Brown, great question. So that is not required. The FDA does not require that for metoclopramide. And remember, too, um, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on. And remember, too, that there are other agents such as Zofran, right? So we use Zofran on dancitron, a 5-HT3 antagonist, for the treatment of nausea and vomiting. Uh, when I was an intern, this is a miracle drug because it had just come out. That's how old it is. Um, we now use it like water. But remember, Zofran on dancitron can cause QT prolongation as well. Absolutely. So it's even some drugs we consider incredibly safe have some risks. Do you, um, as a quick aside, do you do you monitor EKGs on Zofran? You know, I do technique kg at the start, and I do that uh, for Domperidone as well. I'm sure you're going to ask about Domperidone, or we can talk about it right now. So, you know, Domperidone is a medication that helps nausea and vomiting. It's been subjected to multiple studies for gastroparesis patients, both idiopathic and diabetic. And the data is very reasonable. And if I had one choice to reach for, I'd probably choose Domperidone first because I think it is much safer, although there are some reports about QT prolongation with Domperidone 2. As all of our listeners know, it's not readily available in the United States. It's not FDA approved. And technically, you need an IDA, Investigational Drug uh, Approval, to do it at your institution. So a lot of our patients get it from Canada or other countries. I don't suggest Mexico, by the way, because quality control is very poor and you, you may not be getting what you think. And there have been some reports about quality control from India as well. So just be careful what you purchase. Thanks for that.
0: Yeah, that is really sage advice. And is the idea with down Peridome just that, you know, technically the chance for something like tardive dyskinesia is less just because it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier or what, I guess draws you more towards domperidone.
1: Yeah, perfectly phrased. So domperidone, a dopamine antagonist, does not cross the blood-brain barrier, has many fewer side effects than metaclopramide, uh, not have a risk for tardive dyskinesia like metaclopramide does. Correct.
0: Okay. Uh, okay, you—that uh, was perfect. You you pulled together at the end of that case exactly <laughs> how I had uh, drawn it up. All right, so case number two. Um, so uh, this is a 56-year-old female, we'll say Mrs. Smith, uh, who has a history of hyper or sorry hyperlipidemia, uh, coronary artery disease. She's had two prior stents in 2015. She does have type two diabetes and actually a diabetic nephropathy. Um, she presents for an evaluation of her primarily her nausea and vomiting. Uh, she said she's had a prior gastric emptying study, uh, notable for thirty percent retention at four hours, um, and uh, oh, and she's recently you know now presenting because she underwent a resection of her 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 um, first MTP joint in her right foot. Uh, due to osteomyelitis and has been on opioids to deal with the pain. And she feels like you know her symptoms are worsened. Um, yeah, w- what's your approach to this patient? or what are your
1: what are your thoughts? Wow, a lot on the table here, but this is great. So let's take one step back and just think about gastroparesis in the big picture and the epidemiology of gastroparesis And what many of us were taught has now, been proved wrong because things change. So if you think about gastroparesis, the most common reason is diabetes, and that's about 57% of all cases. And most of those are actually type two. The reason being, although type one, long-standing diabetes with associated neuropathy, nephropathy, retinopathy, uh, likely also causing a neuropathy to the gut, um, is kind of the classic case. Type 1 diabetics are fewer in number than type 2. So when you really think about the real clinical world, you're likely to be seeing more type 2 diabetics with delays in stomach emptying. The number two reason to have developed gastroparesis, by the way, is post-surgical. And in this day and age, it's most likely related to uh, injury to the vagus nerve from anti anti-reflex surgery. After that, idiopathic connective tissue disorders, et cetera. But in this patient, don't forget, could this be a vascular problem? So she's a little bit older. She has elevated lipids. She has known cardiac disease. Could she have some vascular compromise to the upper GI tract? And the answer is it's possible. Um, If you were to throw in smoking as well, maybe she smoked in the past. That would increase her pretest probability. So in this patient, I would probably get a mesenteric duplex when I first saw her to kind of put that issue uh, to rest. Let's say though the mesenteric duplex is normal. Now there are a couple of other teaching points. Let's assume the gastric emptying scan was done correctly. She's at 30% remaining at four hours. So we're gonna put her in the more moderate category. I would again ask what's her predominant symptom. It sounds like nausea and vomiting. And then don't be surprised, she just started opioids opioids slow the GI tract. We know opioids affect the esophagus. Opioid-induced esophageal dysfunction clearly slows the stomach, can make you constipated as well. And so the first thing I'd be thinking about is she probably has underlying gastroparesis. We need to work on that. And can we get her off her opioids? Uh, Can we transition her to something else? do we also need to treat coexisting constipation? Don't forget that feedback loop. When people are constipated, it sends a feedback loop upstream and you're going to slow stomach emptying as well. That was a neat study, by the way, in medical students. Remember all good studies. You test them on medical students. We so took medical students. This is a great study. You take medical students, you do a gastric emptying scan, and then what did they do? They made them all really constipated and then they repeated the gastric emptying scans and, of course, their gastric emptying scans all slowed down so what was the irb process like for that yeah this, this is pre-irb yeah. so one of the problems <laughs> is IRBs right, is fair. uh the medical student experiments have really fallen to the wayside all side. by the
0: wayside that's really <laughs> unfortunate that's, that's to our detriment really um so uh um, because you're not a medical student anymore that, that's right so one clarification point then is you know um how do you is is there diagnostic criteria for to say someone has diabetic gastroparesis as opposed to idiopathic, or you just going to say oh this person's got you know diabetic nephropathy or you know retinopathy,
1: this is you know presumptively uh, you know diabetic gastroparesis. No, I I like the way you phrase that. So certainly if they have symptoms consistent with delayed stomach emptying, nausea, fullness, even bloating vomiting, maybe weight loss, Uh, the endoscopy is normal, no evidence of mechanical obstruction, and the gastrochemptine scan was properly performed and is delayed, and 30%, we would all agree, is a moderate delay, then we'd say that the patient has gastroparesis, and in the right setting with diabetes, I'd label that patient as having diabetic gastroparesis correct. Now, superimposed may now be a component of some opioid-induced bowel dysfunction, uh, but it sounds like that uh, the gastrochemical scan was done before the opioids, so I would not put her into just an opioid-induced bowel dysfunction. But by the way, another great teaching point here is that for somebody coming in de novo and they are on opioids, there's really no value to getting a gastrochemptine scan on opioids because we don't have any standards for what's normal or abnormal. And the idea would be to get them off opioids. And the second teaching point is don't do gastrochemptine scans in hospitalized patients. They are basically worthless. They should all be done in the outpatient setting. Perfect. I love it. Uh,
2: okay. oh, to, to clarify that real quick, is, is that because they're mostly bed bound and motility is slowed or, or what's the you know, rationale.
1: Yeah. So you, you know they're bed bound. They're not eating properly. Meals start. Yeah. Meals stop. They're on medications. They're off medications. They're probably constipated. The whole thing is just an absolute mess. Yeah. And so what you really want to do is get them on some good routine outpatient regimen. Um, now, what you can challenge me, and I am challenged with this: What about that patient who's on chronic opioids? Is there a value to doing a gastrochemptine scan? Well, you can, but, you know, all you can say is if it's a little slow, is it the opioids or was it the underlying problem? Now, You could argue, though, if it's normal on opioids, okay, that's somewhat reassuring and maybe you just need to treat the opioid-induced nausea and vomiting or whatever else you think is going on. Let's say uh, this patient, you're able to get her off opioids, okay,
0: but in the past she's been tried on you know, reglan previously, and then she saw a nutritionist and did the whole low-residue diet, low-fat diet, and she said, you know, I hated reglan because it, you know, just made me feel awful, so I don't want to go back to that. Um, at I guess at this point, yeah, wh- where do you go from here, and then when do you start thinking about, um, you know, some of these more advanced therapies like, you know, gastric electrical
1: stimulation or, or GPO. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. So let's say metaclopramide was tried. And remember, for any agent, you have to ask if it didn't work, why? Did they have a side effect or did it was it not the right dose or not the right duration of therapy? So I always like to think about a minimum of four weeks of medical therapy for anything. So let's say uh, she tried metaclopramide at 10 or even 20 milligrams three times a day, just no benefit at all. She can't afford Domperidone off-label. We'll take that off the table. Are there other medical options before we start talking about maybe some things that are a little bit more invasive? So fortunately, there are a list of things we could try recognizing that none are FDA-approved, and this is where I always have a conversation with the patient. Mrs. Smith, I need to let you know I'm going to do my best for you. We're going to work on this together. But technically, we're doing all of this off-label. Just have that conversation up front. So could you use a scopolamine patch? Great. Can be very helpful, cheap, safe. Uh, Could you use uh, Copazine or Phenergan, Prochlorperazine, and pushing those doses? Can you feel comfortable using things in combination, such as maybe 25 milligrams of Phenergan at night and a scopolamine patch? and something else during the day, great. Could you use a prepotant? And we know that there's a small study in gastroparesis patients showing that prepotant helps some symptoms, but remember, it didn't meet the primary endpoint at four weeks. Could you use tridipotant, a similar NK1 antagonist? So all these are different options that are available to patients, and I think this is where you need to be comfortable using kind of combination therapy or augmentation therapy. Let's say you do that, and over the next two to three, four months even, you try all these different therapies, and she's just not doing better, and she she's educated. Let's, let's say she's a biologist, and she's been doing some reading, and she asks about, should we do something experimental? Could we do Botox, as an example, or gastric electrical stimulation? And she heard about GPOM. Um, what about Botox? What's the data? So actually, I was one of the early people doing these studies uh, in about 2000 and botox in diabetic patients does help some patients because there is some biological plausibility that patients with diabetes long-standing diabetes and gastroparesis may have some component of incomplete relaxation of the pylorus or pylorus spasm and there is data showing that in some patients botox may be helpful i think it's certainly reasonable for diabetic patients as a try but we do have two studies in idiopathic patients idiopathic gastroparesis patients saying that Botox does not help. If it does not work the first time, don't keep pushing. It, it's not going to work. What about gastroelectrical stimulation? So this was approved in 2022 years ago, as a humanitarian use device, an HUD. And although it's controversial, there is data showing that patients with persistent nausea and vomiting uh, and gastroparesis have an improvement in symptoms. It does not improve gastric emptying and does not help pain, so I caution my patients about that, but certainly somebody with diabetes, persistent nausea and vomiting, who has failed medical therapy, and who is not on opioids, so gastric electrical stimulation does not help patients on opioids, and you'd have to get her off, but that would be an option too. And of course, this can be done as a temporary procedure, and if they respond, then you could make it permanent. Lastly, what about GPOM, as you mentioned? So a lot of excitement about GPOM, recognizing that the first eight studies were open-label and uncontrolled. So I was very cautious about recommending this to patients because people were excited about POM surgery for achalasia, which is a huge success. But I'm less excited about the biological plausibility for GPOM because of the problems with the pyloruses we've already discussed. However, what was just published in GUT just a few months ago was the first uh, sham controlled study looking at GPOM from Europe. And that was in about 41 patients, if I recall properly. Uh, patients were randomized to sham or to GPOM. And then at the three-month mark, the sham group crossed over and also got the GPOM if they still had symptoms. And what was found? What was found is about the six-month follow-up, about 71% of patients uh, had an improvement in gastropresis symptoms compared to 21% who were just randomized to sham. So we now actually have the first sham-controlled study that was published in the gut showing that maybe GPOM, and these are patients, again, with significant symptoms who have failed medical therapy, it might be a reasonable option. That was a
0: fantastic roundup. Yeah, I, I was, I'm glad that you, you brought that study up because I, I present, I mentioned it to one of my attendings and they were uh, happy to see it. So, uh, so
1: does, is anybody doing any pyloric stenting anymore? Is that sort of gone by the wayside? It has so John Clark, who used to be at Hopkins in Baltimore, is now at Stanford. Uh, initiated some of this and said that there were some benefits with pyloric stenting in a small case report involving a few patients. But you know the problem with stents is they frequently migrate, they move, they become clogged. So to me, it seemed like just a quick fix that, uh, that and I don't recommend it. Two two
2: quick questions. One was going back. Uh, Regland and, and the concept of drug holidays. So, a lot of times, I'll get patients that are referred to me. Um, they've been placed on Reglan um, from their PCP or the ED, you know, thirty tabs or however many tabs with six refills, and it's almost like an indefinite prescription. Um, h- how do you how do you treat that? Do you give drug holidays there?
1: Do You keep patients on it consistently. Yeah. So, it's a great question. But I don't understand how that developed. I think the concept of a Reglan drug holiday developed because in the FDA black box warning, they recommend ideally no longer than 12 weeks of therapy. Um, And so many providers will give 12 weeks and then stop. uh, But we don't have data showing that a holiday actually makes any difference. Now, that's in contrast to erythromycin, probably the most potent gastroconnect that we have. But erythromycin does cause tachyphylaxis, and the motilin receptor down-regulates. And so there is a reason why some people initially feel better with erythromycin, uh, and then the benefits wear off because tachyphylaxis does occur. Now, by the way, erythromycin does nothing for nausea, does nothing for vomiting, right, it actually may cause a lot of nausea in people uh, because it accelerates stomach emptying and, of course, won't do anything for pain. Yeah. Uh, so most people would never use erythromycin except acutely in the inpatient setting. And really, what we've learned is erythromycin probably is a great drug for the GI bleeder, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, um, oh, that actually reminded me. Oh, of one question i'm gonna cut you off for a second um buspirone was i don't think i i didn't see it in this expert review and i i guess in hearing about it, i thought it was like you know kind of helpful for you know gastric accommodation so I, I felt like maybe it had a role in gastroparesis do you use it at all
1: or is it is it just not really helpful or no good studies no, great question. So, Buspirone, Buspar is a 5-HT1 uh, antagonist, and it blocks the receptors in the stomach and can help improve gastric accommodation. Used initially for many years as an anxiolytic, it's a mild anxiolytic, and it probably is better for gastric accommodation. However, Um, I think it's better in the FD patient. So the functional dyspepsia patient, we know that about 30% have impaired gastric accommodation. And so I think it's better in those patients. And I usually start at about 5 milligrams. 30 to 45 minutes before meals, and then slowly increase to 10, 15, or 20. By 20 milligrams TID, many patients feel too fatigued. The concern in gastroparesis patients, although it may help some people, is that theoretically, if you're relaxing the upper stomach too much, you may further impede uh, stomach emptying. But recall, and we didn't really touch on it in my kind of last teaching point, maybe, is there's a very, very poor relationship between stomach emptying and symptoms. People can have a mild delay in stomach emptying and have horrible symptoms. And I see patients who have almost no symptoms, but maybe they're having some reflux and they have a horrible delay in stomach emptying. So there's really a very poor correlation. So don't don't focus so much on just making stomach emptying better.
2: Yeah, one, one last question on my end. So um,
1: blood glucose
2: target levels or A1C target levels, um, is that something that that, you know, we sometimes will talk about you have to be careful when you're doing the, the testing, obviously. Um, but when we're talking about therapy, a lot of times you hear tight glucose control, tight glucose control, but it's sort of left open-ended. Do you have any, any comments on specifically what tight glucose control means and whether it works for type 1 or type 2 or both, um, or whether the, the, the damage
1: to the nerves has been so great
2: that the horse is
1: out of the barn? No, no, that's a great question. And so when I see a diabetic patient, you know, one of the first things, we're a diabetic patient with gastroparesis. The first thing I say is, look, the first thing we need to do is get better control of your blood sugars. Um... So, you know, my patients who come in and they've got a hemoglobin A1C of 11 or 12 and they're having blood sugars in 350, 400 range, clearly that's the first thing we really need to do. And, and I don't do that. I leave that to the endocrinologist. Um, so, But the, then the question is, what's the goal? And, I, and the real answer is nobody knows. You know, ideally, we'd like to get people down to six, six and a half, right? That'd be ideal because we all know there's great older studies showing that tight blood sugar control is so much better for diabetics in terms of vascular disease, heart disease, and strokes, etc. cetera. But we don't have um, great guidelines just for gastroparesis patients per se. So I just tell them to kind of work with their internist and endocrinologist. The lower, the better. Now, the other teaching quick point is that Um, It does make a huge difference though. So this was another great study just for history. Um, If you take normal patients and you do a gastrochemin scan, patients without diabetes, it should be normal, right? Normal gastrochemin scan. You now take those same patients, you put an IV in, you pump them full of glucose, get their blood sugar to 350 to 400. What happens? You repeat the gastrochemin scan, it's slow. And so I tell this to my patients, with gastroparesis, your stomach is already not working very well. When your blood sugar goes to 300, 350, 400, of course, you're going to feel much worse. And sometimes that motivates them. That's great.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I think that's a great motivating uh, mood to end the the podcast on. Dr. Lacey, you are a wealth of knowledge. Um, And this has really been an an awesome conversation on uh, gastroparesis. Uh, for our listeners who, you know, are living under a rock and have not heard your name before, somehow, uh, where can they where can they follow your work or, or, or see what you're uh you know you're what you're thinking about?
1: Yeah, well, one, thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun. I love talking about gastro- gastroparesis and functional dyspepsia. So, thank you so much. What a great podcast! For those of you who are interested in learning more, um, there is that interesting. Uh, article, uh, Gastroparesis, the Sticky Points, in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, a very quick read, uh, which I think uh, you'll find interesting. And then I think, as you mentioned at the start of the article, uh, the start of the podcast, sorry, the recent article in the Blue Journal, the Clinical uh, Gastroenterology and Hepatology, about refractory gastroparesis. So I think both of those would be great uh, reading articles uh, for patients who are, for providers who want to learn a little bit more about gastroparesis. That is perfect. Uh, So uh, we will leave it there. uh, And
0: thank you all for listening. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Lacey. Incredible communicator and
2: educator. Thank you for your
1: time. Wonderful. Again, thank you for having me. And uh, everybody have a great rest of 2022.
3: Hang on to your hats, y'all. Medicine is a lifelong learning process, and this podcast is part of that process for us. While every effort is taken to ensure the accuracy of the material presented, we realize that medicine is constantly changing, not to mention that art comes along with science. In a conversation like this, we may make a mistake or get something wrong. We welcome comments, suggestions, or corrections. This material is presented for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be, nor should it be, understood or construed to be professional advice. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical or health advice to treat yourself or others, whether you're a credentialed medical provider or otherwise. Listening to this podcast does not constitute medical advice, nor does it engender a physician-patient relationship. This podcast should not be considered as a replacement for the services of a licensed trained physician or healthcare professional. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. No author or guest of this podcast should be held liable or responsible for any errors or omissions on this podcast or for any damage you may suffer as a result of failing to see competent medical, health advice from a professional that's familiar with your situation. Furthermore, this podcast is not to be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a, quote, standard of care, in a legal sense, or as a basis for witness testimony. The views, opinions, and beliefs expressed in this podcast are those of the commentators alone, and we make no guarantee about the accuracy of the statements or opinions put forth. This podcast and its contents do not necessarily state or reflect the views, opinions, and beliefs of any employer, company, medical society, or other entity with which the host or guests are affiliated, professionally, or otherwise. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. We do not accept any advertising money. Reference within the podcast to any specific commercial product, process, services, by trading, trademark, manufacturer, or other, does not necessarily constitute or imply its endorsement or recommendation.
0: Basically, this podcast is solely educational, and don't sue us. All right. See you next time, guys.